Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Did you know that suicide, sadly, is the second leading cause of death in young people? And for parents, they can't even comprehend this at all. And I don't blame any of them. Um, Lori Wildenberg's written a book called Messy Hope, Help Your Child Overcome Anxiety, Depression, or Suicidal Ideation. Maybe you've heard your child or grandchild say things like, oh, I'm such a failure, or no one cares about me, or I don't know, I just haven't felt happy for a long time. And the worst would be something like, I don't want to live anymore. And talk about anxiety, and that is going to produce a lot of it. But Lori has written a book, and we're going to chat with her right now. She's going to be at the Set Apart Conference coming up in March, so we're glad to have her on. Lori, hi. Hey, Bill. Good talking with you. Glad to be Thank- here. Thank you so much. Uh, important book that you've written and a uh, very important and sensitive topic. Um, let's talk about the kids that show up with some of these saying these utter, these uttering these words that just uh, have to just make parents feel panicked. Yeah, it does make you feel panicked. Uh, we heard those words. Um, my daughter actually, um, praise God, had a failed suicide attempt. And she was in her senior year of college. And she had um, been behaving somewhat irrationally. And um, we were getting very worried. So I got my things together and drove down to her college to be with her. And little did I know the night before she had attempted to take her life, but God spared her. Um, Those words are scary. And we need to move on it. And the, the reason I wrote this book is because of my daughter's experience and our experience with her. And, you know, I know you've had a lot of professionals, um, you know, therapists on the show like Todd Mulliken and Glenn Pickering. And they have such great stuff to say about mental health. Um, I'm coming at it in a little different perspective from a mom's perspective. And how can we help parents help their kids? And um, I did a lot of research on this. And my daughter actually helped me write this book. So, um, you know, I've, I've made mistakes and, and may have, you know, contributed to some of her anxiety or depression. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of other factors involved there, too. But there are a lot of things that we can do as moms and dads and people who love those who struggle with mental health issues. There's a lot that we can do to help build up their hope and help build up their resiliency. Mm-hmm. Lori, when, when a child comes and says things that are alarming, uh, what are some other things you can uh, a parent can look for with their child before the alarming things even come out uh, are there clues that are left uh, that yeah. would suggest that a child's in trouble 
Boy, those are, that's a great question. Yes, there's quite a few clues. Um, it could be they're isolating, maybe staying in their room longer. Um, another thing could be their room could be a complete disaster. And, you know, a lot of times teenagers' rooms are a complete disaster. But this is beyond that. It, it almost, their bedroom almost reflects their frame of mind. Hmm. Um, and doing reckless things. Like my daughter told me of one time she got in the car and she, we live in Colorado, right? So we've got some pretty gnarly driving situations sometimes. And she told me that she'd get in the car and she'd drive the mountain roads and try to go like a hundred miles an hour. I I mean, I can hardly even think about it. It just makes me sick. Mm -hmm. So, um, reckless behavior, um, Perhaps not taking care of their hygiene could be another one. Uh, those are some things to be looking for. A drop in grades. And, but isolation and a messy room and reckless behavior um, are some big ones. Yeah. So when you're talking to someone that is, you can know and tell they're suffering, of course, how do you divide fact from feeling? Because they're going to come at you with their feelings. And a lot of the times, well, you're feeling something, but that's not reality. Uh, although it's reality to them, how do you how do you separate those two, fact and feelings? That is something that really has to be a process over time. As you're raising your kids, you've got to talk about the difference between facts and feelings. And so often, today's young people confuse the two. Um, and if your brain is in that overwhelmed state, you will also be likely to confuse what is real um, with just a feeling that can come and go. So some prevention is talking to your kids about what is real, what are facts. Is that true? Um, Prior to getting into a situation like this. And then um, if you are talking to your kids and they are experiencing some difficulties, you know, Here's what I love. Jesus always gives it to us straight, right? He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So he kind of deals with both. And um, in this world, you will have trouble. Okay, that's a fact. (laughs) You are going to have trouble in this world. So um, take that and flip that upside down because he has overcome the world. So we can take heart. But when we deal with our kids who are struggling with mental health issues, it is important to talk about reality. In fact, reality is more important than positivity, which surprised me as I was researching. If we come to our kids with all kinds of, you know, just think positive thoughts or it could be worse, those are actually kind of discounting statements and they're not meeting the child where the child is. So when the child is describing their feelings, that is something that is real to them. And we need to respond in a way that shows that we're listening and that we're understanding. Um, And in some cases we need to move pretty fast to get our kiddos help depending on what it is they are expressing. 
But reality is more important than positivity. And being able to talk through, okay, now is this a feeling? Is this a fact? The fact is somebody didn't call you back. The feeling is rejection. But could it be? You can ask questions like, well, could it be they didn't call you back because their phone died? Could it be they didn't call you back because they're involved in something else? It may not be rejection. So those are some little steps you can kind of walk through by um, throwing out other scenarios and asking some questions. And then I think you're a little bit more able to deal in what is fact and what is feeling and what is real and what is really an assumption. Mm-hmm. Lori Wildenberg is my guest. She's written a book called Messy Hope, Help Your Child Overcome Anxiety, Depression, or Suicidal Ideation. Lori, what happens when you're not able to have respectful conversation uh, and it's hard to uh, engage on a level where you're, the child is listening and, and you're listening and everyone's understanding what happens when it just goes south? Yeah, that's always a bummer, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> we I never, would imagine. Yeah, we never like. <laughs> we don't like to have those conversations with anybody who isn't listening and demonstrating respect. Well, we've we've developed a little line here that um, I treat you with respect. I expect respect in return, and uh, let's table this until we can have a reasonable and respectful conversation where we can have dialogue rather than maybe one person lecturing or, um, you know, a monologue sort of a thing. So you have to establish various, various boundaries too around your conversations. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about how young people get into this state where, you know, you talked about rejection and I think, well, how do we train kids to understand rejection? Because it's such a big part of life. And it never feels good whether you're 14 or whether you're 34 or 64. It doesn't matter, right? Um, So helping them understand rejection, but also what are some diagnostic tools? I mean, I think social media would be a source of a lot of pain and suffering for kids when it talks about anxiety and depression. You've hit the nail on the head. We... Anxiety and depression are on the rise. And as you said in the intro, um, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. Here in Colorado, it's number one. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and it actually took a turn during the pandemic time where it, it made its way to number one. But, you know, I don't know that we do such a good job of preparing our kids for rejection. We so often want to shelter them and protect them from anything that hurts. And that, mm-hmm. that is a normal parental reaction. But much better to understand what rejection feels like, what sadness and grief feel like, because we are not going to live a life that is fully happy all the time. And, and you know what? I don't think we'd really want to. Because if we did, we wouldn't really understand happiness even, or we wouldn't know how to express um, 
sadness and grief and, and show empathy, or we wouldn't ever have the ability to um, experience fear and know what it's like to be um, brave and courageous in the midst in the midst of feeling afraid. So we haven't done necessarily a really great job at talking with our kids about rejection. And what I've learned throughout my life is sometimes rejection is honestly God's protection. But that's, that's that's something that you have to like look in the rear view mirror. That's not, that's not something that you understand in the midst of it because it's so painful. Um, Mm -hmm. And so many parents are afraid to correct their child because they're afraid their child will feel rejected. Um, I was speaking to a group of moms um, about a couple years ago, and one mom said to me, she goes, you know, when I try to correct my child, she tells me, Mommy, you're hurting my heart. (laughs) And so, so I said, well, tell her you're talking to her head, not her heart. Now, that was a total God moment, because that doesn't come out of my mouth. I don't think that fast. <laughs> yeah. but, um, that was one thing I thought, yeah, we have to work with our kids to let them know that we're talking to their brains sometimes, and it isn't always about their heart. And correction also, it might be God's protection, but correction, you know, isn't rejection. Now, criticize, criticism, that's different. Um, mm-hmm. We need to be very careful with criticism and competition. Um, These are things that can kind of start to stir that pot of discontent. And then, you know, it could move into despair or depression if we continue along those lines. All right, Lori, let me take a little break. We'll come back with Lori Wildenberg. She's written a book called Messy Hope, Help Your Child Overcome Anxiety, Depression, or Suicidal Ideation. If you have a question, 877 933-2484. Be right back with Lori. Start each week with a moment of reflection and prayer with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional email. Sign up today at myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Lori Wildenberg. She's written a book called Messy Hope, Helping Your Child Overcome Anxiety, Depression, or Suicidal Ideation. Uh, Rosie and I were just chatting during the break, Lori, and, and when you think of social media and the power it has and the influence it has, it it has a, an ability to, to uh, terrorize kids in ways that I've, I've never been able to understand. I mean, if your, if your child's teacher said, that your son, for example, had a hard time concentrating in class. And the teacher said, oh, and by the way, he also eats 30 candy bars uh, in the morning. You'd go, well, wait, wait a minute. We, we've got we got to stop this candy bar eating. It, it has to stop. He just too, has too much sugar in his system. There's no way he can sit still and learn. I mean, how is social media different than that? Yeah, it <laughs> it's that Turkish delight, right, from C.S. Lewis. You just, they just can't seem to get enough. It's, it is actually an addiction um, and that we have to treat it as such. Yeah. So 
parents all have different ways of dealing with this, but I do think it's something that everybody needs a heads up on, that there's a lot of negativity that can be attached to that, and it can create a lot of uh, social anxiety. It also, um, internet bullying can occur. So we have to be careful as to how much we allow our kids to do this. Um, there's some things that can, parents can do. Uh, keep any sort of device, including the phone, um, out of the kids' rooms, um, particularly at night. Uh, even sleep is getting interrupted because kids are texting each other in the middle of the night, and the ones receiving the text are getting their sleep interrupted. So it isn't healthy. Um, there's another thing that can happen that, you know, fear of missing out, right, where they see everybody's out and they weren't invited. Again, there's that rejection, and then there's the embarrassment, and there's the sadness that can go along with that. And those are hard things. Now, you can always find out about this stuff, too, without social media, but it's right in your face with social mm -hmm. media. And there's, there's no buffer. And you're typically alone when you discover these things. And um, I had a friend, and I was, I was looking at her Facebook post, and I was thinking, wow, she travels a lot. Boy, I wish I traveled like her. And then when we got together, she said to me, wow, you've really been traveling a lot. And I said, no, I haven't. I, what, you know, I said, I thought you were traveling a lot. And I was kind of feeling like, gosh, we should do some more traveling. So you don't see a person's full life. And sure. that was one of the things that I wish that we had talked with our daughter about more. That social media is, again, the highlight reel, right, of, mm -hmm. of somebody's life. It's like a daily Christmas card. And we need to know, well, there's things that are going on behind the scenes that we have no idea. It's also like going to church, right? Everybody gets out of the car and walks into church and the whole family's happy. But we don't know what happened in the car on the way there or on the way back or even getting out of the house. A lot of times there's a lot of drama that goes on just getting the whole family to church. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't see a full perspective. And, um, and we just get little sound bites. And then, again, that comparison comes in. And that can move a young person to despair when they see that. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that uh, one of the healthy things that my daughter has chosen to do is she really limits her social media time, and sometimes she just fully exits. She, you know, she either fasts from social media or, or takes a prolonged break. And mm -hmm. she said that makes a great difference in her way to view life and her personal mental health. Yeah. So, Lori, I know there's plenty of people listening that has a child with anxiety right now, maybe some depression, and maybe there's been talk of not wanting to live anymore. And you've walked through this with your daughter. So maybe in the remaining couple of minutes, you can do uh, the best to give us some wisdom and counsel. Uh, in addition to trying to get our hands on your book, Messy Hope, what, what can you tell us? I think we need to first off, remove any stigma, any um, spiritual stigma, because in the Christian community, there is some with uh, mental health issues. We treat those very differently than we treat physical issues for some reason. 
And sometimes we think that it's tied into a lack of faith. Um, that is not true. You look at so many people in Scripture, and David struggled with depression. And when you read through his Psalms, you can hear him lamenting in so many places. Um, and he was a man after God's own heart, you know, and, and that was David. Um, and I think you've even alluded to this in, um, in another podcast. Jesus was sweating blood over the anxiety of going to the cross. Mm-hmm. He had great anxiety. Um, we need to remove any sort of thought that, you know, this is a shameful thing. It's not. It's, it's not a shameful thing, but it's something that needs to be addressed. It's, it's a problem to be addressed. And so you need to seek help and remove any kind of stigma, negative stigma from that. And ask the very hard questions. If you are hearing your child saying, I don't want to live anymore, or, or if you're just noticing a demeanor where they're really withdrawn and maybe it's, they're super lethargic, it's tough to get out of bed, um, those sort of things, start asking the questions. And this is a very scary question to ask, but it's better to ask than to not. Ask them, have you considered taking your life? Are you Mm -hmm. thinking about that? And that's the worst thing to think of asking. In fact, it scares a parent so much that they may not ask it because they're afraid that they're going to put an idea in their kid's head. Mm -hmm. But if you're thinking of the question, perhaps the Lord is nudging you with that question. And that's something that needs to be asked as scary as it is. And if you are thinking about that question, there is a very good probability your child has already been down that road thinking about it. So don't wait, get help. And we raise our kids and we think that we need to raise them to be independent. Well, the Lord has created us to be interdependent, to rely upon each other and to help each other. And our kids should not be struggling alone and trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They need to know that they have people in their family that they and and in other places too, right? That they can count mm-hmm. on and they can say, "Hey, I'm struggling. I need help." And to remove anything that would be negative and shameful for them, it's a yeah. brave thing. It's a brave thing to ask for help, and it mm-hmm. is a smart thing. And Lori, uh, we're out of time, but just of course, adolescence is hard. You know, I, I remember the day my voice changed when I was 17 and I was thinking, yeah, this is hard. <laughs> so, I mean, we got to just be compassionate with kids and let them know this is not an easy time in life. So thank you for your book and your time today. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Lori wildenberg has been my guest. Her book is Messy Hope and she's going to be at the Set Apart Conference. You can learn more about that at myfaithradio.com. We'll take a break and we'll be back with Gary McIntosh and his book, The Solo Pastor. Let's get it started.
Jump in your car yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show With Bill Arno Oh, there are a lot of hard challenges in life. One of them I would uh, suggest would be pastoring a church all by yourself, just doing that alone. That would be uh, an extremely challenging uh, job. And my guest, Dr. Gary McIntosh, has written a book called The Solo Pastor, Understanding and Overcoming the Challenges of Leading a Church Alone. I'm fascinated with this whole topic. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you much, Bill. Good to be with you and your listeners. Hope you're all well, doing well today. We we are. Thank you so much for that. And I can only imagine uh, what gets piled on uh, a person leading a, a church alone. Uh, it's exhausting. Just even think about it. It really is. And uh, that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to help out some of these pastors who are out there serving by themselves. Yeah. So, uh, Gary, let's just start by defining what a solo pastor is. A solo pastor is a person who is serving a church as a pastor, but without any other uh, professional help. So uh, the pastor may have volunteers, may have deacons, may have elders, um, but they don't have anyone else who's actually gone to school, had any professional training to be a pastor. So a lot of the responsibilities of teaching and training uh, would be primarily in in the, the responsibility of the pastor and then you're getting you're getting lay help as well and people that can maybe lead Bible studies and assist but the majority of the responsibility is on your shoulders that's right right and uh, for many solo pastors not only do they do the preaching and the teaching and Bible studies and things like that but uh, sometimes they end up having to do um, work uh, financially with the budget. They have to sometimes work at uh, taking care of the church building or the church grounds. Uh, of course, they have to do a lot, of the, a lot, if not all, of the pastoral care, uh, hospital visitation, uh, funerals, counseling. You know, it's it's... Everything is basically on their shoulders, and uh, it makes for a very tiring type of job. It's 24-7. When you go home at night, you take the job with you, and, um, you know, you really don't ever have a rest, and you don't have other people you can talk to who really understand uh, the pressures that you're facing. And it ends up creating kind of a a situation where you're isolated and lonely. Mm Mm-hmm. Gary, I would also uh, suggest that if you are in a small church, given everything you just said, you might also have a little tiny part-time job on the side to make ends meet. Many solo pastors do. The um, uh, What we're seeing in the United States today is somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of all churches are served by a single pastor rather than a multiple staff. Uh, that's quite significant. That's probably somewhere around 300,000 churches or even a little more. Uh, some denominations or associations of churches have as high as uh, 87, 90 percent of their pastors are, are serving alone. And uh, many of them are in smaller churches, and if the church is under, say, maybe 125, 150 people, 
most likely the church cannot provide a full living wage with all benefits that would be expected uh, today. And so what that means is the pastor has to be bivocational and Mm -hmm. work another job. And, of course, that just adds to the stress because, uh, you know, you're still trying to pastor the church and everything that goes on, but you don't have a full week to do it. You've got to work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So, Gary, let's talk about some of the ways in which pastors suffer, because you did talk about loneliness and isolation and even self-doubt. I I know that there are pastors listening right now that might be in that situation. I know a lot of people uh, in in a pastoral role have decided to leave being a pastor, and they don't want to go to another church. They want to get out of the profession altogether or the ministry uh, or the calling, which is really, really sad. It is sad, and, um, you know, it's uh, a result of not only the uh, pressures on their their time, but it, it uh, creates spiritual pressures, it creates emotional issues, um, uh, it also goes into their family situation, um, you know, all the pressures of leading a church by yourself, it it, um, it piles up on you over time. Uh, usually a pastor will do pretty well for the first maybe two, three, four years, but uh, maybe by year four, five, or six, uh, it's getting to be uh, where you can't really continue to um, uh, to serve. A lot of pastors find that the only way they can get some rest, unfortunately, is to leave their church. And so um, what I recommend to pastors is uh, a couple of things. One, they they need to be sure of their call. You know, if God has called them to that particular church for this particular time, it's not a mistake. God wants them there, uh, and they need to, to rest in that. But um, beyond that, they need to take control of their own lives. I call it leading yourself. Uh, the hardest person to lead is yourself. Um, and pastors need to lead themselves before they lead the church. And, and by that, I mean they, they need to take control of their time, uh, perhaps use a calendar, uh, make sure that they schedule in time with family, time for rest, uh, you know, time for uh, spiritual refreshment, uh, uh, you know, time to think and just uh, mm-hmm. you know, be away from the church. Uh, um, you know, um, a lot of pastors don't do that. What they do is, uh, I think, in a misguided understanding that they need to serve the church, and, and certainly church leadership is about servanthood. There's no doubt about that, but... Um, I think they, a lot of times pastors, solo pastors in particular, are misguided in thinking that uh, they have to be available to the church, to the people, uh, every moment of the day or night. And, uh, and so what they do is they let the demands and the expectations of the church people encroach into uh, their uh, time for uh, spiritual development as an individual, their time as family people, uh, uh, their need for rest. And the only way to control that is to lead yourself, uh, use a calendar, uh, 
you know, put a date on the calendar with your spouse. Put put uh, dates on the calendar with your children. You know, put a date on your calendar to get away and uh, and read for a couple hours. You know, and you really have to lead yourself. If you don't lead yourself, uh, you know, there are many other people in the church who'll be happy to tell you how to spend your time, and usually <laughs> it's not the best use of your time. Right. Dr. Gary McIntosh is my guest. His book is The Solo Pastor, Understanding and Overcoming the Challenges of Leading a Church Alone. Gary, how many years did you uh, lead a church by yourself? I uh, pastored two churches over about a 10-year period of time as a lead pastor, and uh, for the great majority of that time, I was the uh, only uh, pastor there. Mm -hmm. Um in the second church, I was able to build it up to where we had a small staff, but uh, for many years I was a solo pastor. But uh, I've been consulting with churches now for close to 40 years, coaching pastors, and, um, you know, with so many uh, solo pastors out there, I've uh, had many conversations with uh, pastors over the years. And so this book is... Um, a bit of uh, you know my memories, but uh, mostly uh, conversations I've had with pastors throughout the the last three or four decades. Of, mm -hmm. You know what they're really facing. Yeah, Gary, how does the solo pastor separate reasonable from unreasonable requests? How do you draw the line between what you consider reasonable and unreasonable? Oh, that uh, depends a lot on different things, but uh, I think if you, if you first of all, um, you know, kind of set your own calendar, uh, then I think what happens is that, that, that allows you to set some boundaries uh, in your life, and uh, then when people, uh, you know, come up to you in the hallway or at church or something and say, oh, pastor, I just got a really meet with you now, um, you've got some basic guidelines. They might say, well, Pastor, you know, I really need to get together with you Thursday night. Can I get together with you Thursday night? And you look on your calendar, and you've got a date with your spouse on Thursday night. And you can say to them, you know, I, um, I'd i love to get together with you, but I can't do it Thursday night. Uh, so you, you've immediately set some boundaries. Uh, obviously, if it's an emergency, someone's in a car wreck in a hospital or something, you know, you go. But um, most things are, are not emergencies. Uh, I think beyond just having a basic framework of your work week and, and letting that kind of be the sieve that you kind of put things through, I think when people come up to you with uh, requests, uh, you have to ask more questions. Uh, so, for instance, uh, if someone says, oh, can I can I meet with you for lunch on uh, Tuesday? And you you would say to them, I'd, I'd love to get together with you on Tuesday. What is the uh, reason you want to get together? Um, if they say to you, well, I'll tell you then, then the, the answer is no. <laughs> no I, I need to know now. Uh, what we're going to be talking about Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So you ask them that, um, and the reason is, is twofold. One, you want to be prepared if they want to talk about a theological question or if they've got a 
an issue with a, a, a child or something, you want to have some time to think about it, maybe have uh, some thoughts prepared on the scripture or something that you can share with them. Uh, but secondly, you don't want to be ambushed. And uh, a lot of times people will uh, demand to see you or ask to see you, uh, and they won't tell you why. And that's a red flag. If they won't tell you why, it's a red flag uh, that you're probably going to get ambushed. And um, my advice to pastors is that becomes another grid to work through. If they won't tell you why they want to meet, then we don't meet. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, you're protecting yourself emotionally, spiritually, uh, but you're also setting boundaries. And this is a big issue, I think, for the solo pastor. There has to be some boundaries that are set. In a larger church, you're going to have other staff members. You're going to have a secretary who protects you. Uh, You know, someone comes to the office and says, can I see the pastor? The secretary's going to say, well, sure, the next appointment is five weeks from now. (laughs) You know, so... And and then the secretary will say, and what is it you want to see the pastor about? Uh, you know, and so, but in a in a solo pastor church, you don't have that staff and that secretary to, uh, yeah. you know, set those boundaries. So it's a lot of it's just about it, it's, uh, you know, tell people you want to be available to them, and you've got to have space in your calendar for that. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to think through some ways to kind of create a sieve to which you put requests through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an- another suggestion would be like if somebody says, oh, I, I really need to talk to you about the youth ministry. And uh, if you do have someone who is overseeing the youth ministry, then the the logical thing to do is say, you know, have you talked to... Uh, this person first. And if they say no, then you say, you know, uh, before you talk to me, I think, you know, they're over the youth ministry. They know more about it than I do. Why don't you talk to them first? Um, So there's little things you can learn, uh, you know, to just kind of, uh, uh, I guess you would say, determine, you know, which is something you, which conversation is something you should have with them, and maybe somebody, or or maybe somebody else should have it, or maybe you shouldn't have it at all. Mm-hmm. All right, let me take a little break. Doctor Gary McIntosh is my guest. His book is called The Solo Pastor. And when we come back, I want to ask him about church bullies. There's an anonymous quote that says, "Pastors are revered one day, reviled the next." We're gonna be right back in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with... Dr. Gary McIntosh, his book is The Solo Pastor, and he said in his book that a church is the most complex organization to lead. 
It's what management experts call goal-conflicted. One goal is to care for people. Another is to send people out in ministry. The church is made up of the walking wounded, people in need of healing, or those who have recovered just enough to serve. I could go on and on. A lot of great insights in this book. But let's talk, if we can, Gary, about a church bully. Maybe describe who is a church bully, who is the type of person, and how do we neutralize them? Church bullies, unfortunately, are uh, fairly common in uh, churches, particularly the uh, smaller solo pastor churches. Um, A church bully really is a person who is um, trying to uh, take control of the church, I guess you would say, um, in uh, kind of an overbearing uh, fashion. Um, And so... You know, a lot of times they um, will be the type of person who always wants to pick a fight, always wants to argue, um, always wants to demand that things in the church be done their particular way. Um, Usually they have to have somebody to fight, and usually, and unfortunately, it's the the solo pastor. Uh, Bullies are not new, Uh, as I mentioned in the... Uh, the book, uh, the Apostle John, uh, in in the biblical book of Third John, you know, talks about Diotrephes, who uh, loved to be first in the church and um, wouldn't listen to what other people would say. And uh, so, I think this type of person's been with us for um, a couple thousand years. Gary, what is Pastor Fetch? You talk about that in your book. Yeah, Pastor Fetch is the... Uh, F-E-T-C-H. F-E-T-C-H. Uh, okay. It's like when you uh, play fetch with a dog, you know, you throw a ball and the and you say to the dog, the dog go fetch the ball, and the, the dog gets the ball, brings it back, and you uh, scratch the dog behind the ears and say, good boy, you know, <laughs> for picking up the ball. Uh, it, it's a game in churches where uh, people... Uh, expect the church, the pastor, to to do whatever their bidding is, uh, to do whatever they want. Uh, uh, so, just as an example, um, someone might say to the pastor, well, "Well, pastor, could you drop by the post office and pick up the mail?" Or, uh, "Pastor, could you run over to the church and turn the lights off?" Or, uh, "You know, pastor, could you do this or do that?" and uh, a lot of times, uh, again, kind of a misguided understanding of servanthood, I think. Pastors, solo pastors, feel like, oh, they just got to do everything that the church asks. So, sure, I'll pick up the mail, you know. Uh, sure, I'll do this. Sure, I'll do that. I'll run over and turn the lights off in the church and whatever. Um, and it, it's almost like it's a game. The people are asking the pastor, you know, to go do something. When the pastor does it, then the pastor is a good boy, you know, oh, a good boy. And, of course, if you don't do it, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. then you're not such a good boy. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it can it can uh, be numerous different things. Um, uh, I remember one pastor telling me that uh, the church expected that he... Uh, visit a certain person in the church every week. Um, and uh, if he did, he was a good boy. If he didn't, he was a bad boy, you know. Uh, so it can be d- different kinds of expectations, but it's uh, 
what it does is it uh, basically treats the pastor like a hired hand uh, rather than as a pastor, as a person called by God to, you know, make disciples and and help the church uh, fulfill the Great Commission. So, Gary, a solo pastor probably seldom hears things like, well, the job is now done. We've gotten that all taken care of because there's always, always more to do more to do if you're a solo pastor at a church. And even though you've finished the sermon for Sunday, guess what? Next Sunday's coming. Um, and you've got still a lot to do. And I'm not saying that isn't true for people in, for pastors in bigger churches, because you finished your sermon and next Sunday's coming. But a solo pastor is uh, very seldom hears, we're all done for now. That's right, and uh, it's um, it's not just the the preaching, but it's the other expectations too. So there's always another board meeting. There's a, always another financial meeting. There's always someone else who needs counseled. Uh, the advantage of the multiple staff church is that you share that that load of work with other people. And so, you know, maybe somebody else can uh, do some premarital counseling. Somebody else can, you know, lead the Bible study. Um, you know, somebody else can work with the church budget. And, and that frees the, the lead pastor up to spend more time to polish their sermon or find good sermon illustrations. Uh, but when you're dealing with a solo pastor, a lot of times they have to do all that work. There's there's no one to delegate to. And uh, even if they try to disciple some of the lay people in the church to take over some of those jobs, uh, the people in the church sometimes just don't have the same level of uh, commitment to the church that the, the pastor does. Um, and so sometimes people don't follow through on their jobs, well, if they don't follow through on their jobs, whose lap does it drop back into? It drops back into the solo pastor's lap. And then, as you were mentioning earlier, a lot of the solo pastors are not full-time pastors. Uh, and so it's it's just this weight of uh, the things that have to be done in the church that's there all the time with no one really to share that with no one, sometimes no one even to really talk to about it, yeah. but cer- certainly no one to uh, delegate it to sometimes. Mm-hmm. You have a quote from uh, Pastor Leith Anderson, who was my pastor for nine years, and he said, the pastor as a visionary is like an architect who intimately knows each room in the building he or she is designing long before it's actually constructed. And uh, as a visionary pastor, as you want to try to have a focus and a vision, it's hard to as a solo pastor because you've got so many immediate things that have to be done every day. So I guess my question would be, uh, where do you find time for some of that? And also, how do you find an accountability group where you can kind of decompress with other pastors and, and, and intimate friends that you can um, kind of decompress with? The vision part of that, you have to have some space in your life to have vision. Uh, When you're constantly under the gun of pressure of things to do, it's hard to dream about the future. I I found uh, for myself, and and I 
uh, talk a little bit about this in the book, but for myself, when I was a solo pastor, uh, I had to create a space of about two or three hours a week where I could get away and really uh, think about the future of the church and get a larger perspective of the church. And for me, I had to get away from the church campus because uh, as a solo pastor, people were always dropping by. They'd see my car in the parking lot. They'd come knock on my door. Hey, pastor, got time for coffee? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say no. Um, Mm -hmm. What I did is I actually would go over to the public library and would go back in the stacks of books and find an empty table and sit down. And, um, you know, I was able to think and write and read. And, uh, you know, in the library, you know, there's a, a culture where we're supposed to be quiet in a library, so people weren't coming up talking to me <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Very you know, sneaky, Gary. me alone. And, but I found that that I really needed that space. Uh, to to get away, and, and I think pastors need to do that. Another thing I did, which was really helpful, was uh, the the church was uh, in a city that was uh, kind of right below uh, some mountains, and I I found that there was a picnic area up in the mountains about thirty miles away, and about once every three months I would go up there with a lunch, and I would set up in the mountains at this picnic place, and I would pray, I'd read my Bible, I would think about the church, you know, mm-hmm. what's the future, where do we need to go, what do we need to do, um, and it really helped me get a vision for, you know, what God wanted for our church. Yeah, yeah. that sounds fantastic. I had to get yeah. away, I had to yeah. get away. Yeah. Gary, thank you so much for doing the show, it's great having you on. Well, thank you much, I appreciate you having me, you Bill, bet. and uh, I pray thank you goes well with you and your listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.